Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is September 5th, 2018, and we are joined by the founder of the Weekly Standard, Bill Crystal. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Hi, Charlie. How are you? Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, John McCain's funeral, which I know you attended over the weekend. But let's let's talk about the less edifying things, including the the Senate hearing uh, involving uh, Judge Kavanaugh. And but before we get into all of this, because I'm I'm slightly obsessed with you know how it, everyone in America appears to be on the verge of losing their minds. This this blow up yesterday about a young attorney named Zena Bash who is sitting behind Judge Kavanaugh. You're familiar with this story, right? Right. She's a very well-known, respected attorney. She is the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors of uh, uh, not merely of Jewish, but also of uh, Mexican-American descent. And for some reason, um, certain folks on uh, left-leaning progressive resistance Twitter decided that the way she was holding her hand was somehow a subliminal white supremacist signal. And this went absolutely viral. And I, I'm, I'm just struck how, and I know that people on the left hate any sort of you know, moral equivalency uh, ever, uh, but it did strike me as sort of equivalent to the, the uh, progressive version of Pizzagate. But, but once again, an indication that we live in an era in which the most bizarre conspiracy theories will have legs. And in this tribal world that if we really hate you, we're prepared to say anything about you, believe anything about you, even if it's not true. Yeah, the number of people who seem to have, and I didn't follow closely, but the number of people who seem to have retweeted this without checking or, you know, and just sort of blindly accepting it because vaguely it fit into their view of what the Trump administration was like. And then some of them sort of half-heartedly apologized. They wanted to actually apologize, and then a bunch seemed to have just kept quiet on this. I mean, it's bad in so many ways in terms of debasing our discourse. It also, from the point of view of being a critic of the Trump administration— it totally uh, guts the uh, credibility of people who occasionally do, should be calling attention to genuine alt-right and, you know, uh, sort of bad people who've, who have made their way into the administration or who made their way into publications that defend the administration. But then they take a totally respectable uh, attorney uh, helping out a totally respectable judicial nominee and they conflate it all together. And then they just then everyone just decides, well, all these criticisms are crazy. Not all those criticisms are crazy, actually. And so well, that's right. the distinction of the alt-right and the normal conservatives gets, gets lost uh, thanks to that. Well, I thought also it, it, it is interesting to recognize that this is sort of an alt-right 4chan hoax trying to turn the, you know, the you know, thumb and forefinger somehow into a uh, into into a symbol, which is sort of the ultimate troll. So, right. you know, talk about falling, falling into that. How bizarre. I also thought that this is so familiar to me and I'm sure it's familiar to you. I this is like a flashback to. You know, when when you first started seeing folks on the right from the fever swamps push their bizarre conspiracy theories. And one of my regrets is that we didn't, you know, stamp them down harder and more definitively early. But it does seem like a mirror image right now that that there are, you know, people who again are willing to believe anything. And because we really hate people, because there are people who are detestable um on the other side, uh, let's just throw this out. What I thought was also interesting. The Chris Hayes uh, from MSNBC had sort of tweeted out something about this, but then backed off and acknowledged that it was probably not true. If you look at the responses he's getting, you know, and, and Chris Hayes is 
progressive credentials are about as solid as anybody you know in in the world the, the fact that he's getting you know dragged and ripped for for not going along with this is another sign of our times uh, well, let's talk about something a little bit but more. Just on uh, that, I mean, yeah, I, sure. you and I are both uh, sort of obsessed with this. I, I really yeah. agree with you, though. It makes you I'm genuinely concerned about the country. Someone tweeted this morning, uh, not unintelligently, I thought that, well, maybe there'll be a reaction to Trump, but also to the critics of Trump, and there's some polls showing support for free trade and for yeah. you know constitutional democracy. But And that's partly true, I think. That's possible that we'll come out of this. But the damage that's being done by the conspiracy theorizing and just random and routine uh, character assassination on both sides now is really um, is serious. I mean, I, I don't think we need to say, obviously, if you're president of the United States doing it, you have more effect than if you're some random person on Twitter doing it. So it's not a, uh, it's not a kind of political equivalence, you might say. Trump remains a bigger problem, probably. But it is a kind of moral equivalence in the sense that Trump being a birther or uh, this young woman being uh, slandered is not that different in terms of imputing things that aren't true to other people. But uh, conspiracy theorizing, I've always been most worried about that or sort of upset about that, the, the increasing uh, take uh, sway that has, I guess, on both sides. Because the trouble with conspiracy theorizing is it's sort of hard to falsify. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. if someone says to you, well, it's not true, then it's just, well, the conspiracy is even deeper than you realize. And that is how a country really, parts of a country at least, parts of political movements, just go down a rabbit hole that they never emerge from. And it's really bad for the country. Yeah, and and also just the the culture of negative partisanship, where you you really get the sense that that we are no longer uh, in the midst of a politics of persuasion. That nobody is ever trying to convince anyone to change their mind. Um, there is there even though we talk about you know reaching across the divide, etc. Um, there's less and less of all of that. Well, as I as I suggested. From the from the absolutely absurd to you know one of the better moments and, and quite frankly I, I I don't think the the hearings have had a lot of better moments but but the one moment that did stand out to me and I'm going to get your reaction was a Nebraska Senator Ben Sass who gave a I think a, a 15 minute civics lecture uh, discussion of the role of the judiciary and this is a just a little bit of what he had to say. Judge Kavanaugh doesn't hate women and children. Judge Kavanaugh doesn't lust after dirty water and stinky air. No, looking at his record, it seems to me that what he actually dislikes are legislators that are too lazy and too risk-averse to do our actual jobs. It seems to me that if you read his 300-plus opinions, what his opinions reveal to me is a dissatisfaction, I think he would argue a constitutionally compelled dissatisfaction, with power-hungry executive branch bureaucrats doing our job when we fail to do it. And in this view, I think he's aligned with the founders. For our Constitution places power not in the hands of this city's bureaucracy, which can't be fired, but our Constitution places the policymaking power in the 535 of our hands because the voters can hire and fire us. And if the voters are going to retain their power, they need a legislature that's responsive to politics, not a judiciary that's responsive to politics. So, Bill Crystal, your thoughts about uh, Ben Sass? I mentioned him on the podcast yesterday. I'm I'm fascinated by his willingness to be more outspoken. I I had the sense that uh, among Republicans in the Senate, uh, he was one of those who who seemed somewhat inspired last week to to emulate the traditions of John McCain. But I also thought that this was a a a powerful moment in a hearing which. Uh, there weren't that many of them. You know, I agree with that. I went back. I wasn't watching at the time, but I went back and, and, and read and saw, actually, 
uh, what Sass said. I, here's what uh, what strikes me. Uh, the reason it's, uh, one reason it strikes me that it might, might have hit a chord is I got I think three emails during those 15 minutes from friends, two of them not particularly political uh, professors and and universities who apparently were watching, saying, boy, are you watching Ben Sass here? This is really excellent. And that's that's pretty unusual. People don't, you know, normally in the middle of the day bother to email me, and these aren't really close friends with whom I'm like in constant contact, you know? And they just thought, I wanted to kind of call it to my attention and maybe thought I'd say something about it. But so that strikes me that he maybe really hit a chord trying to step back and make a broader constitutional case, both about the responsibilities of judges and the responsibility, which is really the core of it, I think more of members of Congress and of the public itself, you know, in, in maintaining this constitutional government. I think SAS has always had some ability to get above the fray a little bit, not in the sense of, of, of just avoiding it, but in the sense of framing it in a deeper way. I think he did that in his book, uh, first book. Um, and he's got another book coming out that I've seen in galleys. I think it's coming out pretty soon, about a month. That's also impressive. So he is an impressive person, thinker, senator, I would say. He gets criticized some for, well, gee, you're a senator. You should do more about it. Right. Occasionally, I to ask you about that. Occasionally, yeah. I sort of think that. i got to say, you know, there's some legislation he could introduce. It wouldn't pass probably, but it would be a way of showing he's not just like you and me, you know, talking about it. Yeah. Um, but no, but I think, I think there's some genuinely impressive thinking and uh, uh, going on there. Well, let's talk about that because he is getting ripped from both uh, the left and uh, and and the right. Uh, well, I mean, to to the extent uh, that, that Jen Rubin is still the right um, for for not doing more. You know, there's the sense that uh, that he and Jeff Flake should take a stand. And there are things that I think, and I've written about it, you've written about it, that they can do. But there seems to be this this demand that that if you are a critic of Donald Trump, that you need to draw a line. For example on the nomination of Judge Kavanaugh, that if you're really sincerely uh, concerned about these kinds of issues, you ought, to, you ought to vote against Judge Kavanaugh, which I disagree with, but and I'm guessing you do as well, that that, that seems to conflate anti-Trumpism with completely abandoning what you ran, ran on and what you would have done had any other president appointed him. Right, and this is a nominee who would have been appointed, in fact, by mainstream Republicans. He's a very mainstream uh, choice by uh, President Trump. So it's a little weird. I mean, I could I could imagine in extremists in a total crisis, middle of crisis, one might say the only way I can get the attention somehow of either the Trump administration or the country is by dramatically opposing someone I would otherwise support. I don't think we're quite there. So I think, in fact, Sass is right to support Kavanaugh, who will be a good Supreme Court justice and is in accord with positions SAS has taken for, for years. So that, in terms of understanding the Constitution, so I agree with that. Now, there are things, I, I guess the one thing I would say, though, is I am slightly sympathetic to the criticism in the sense that if you think it's a, Trump is a threat to the independence of the Justice Department, to the rule of law, which SAS has said, and I think we've, uh, you and I have certainly argued, you could vote to uh, um, help uh, strengthen Mueller in various ways. SAS didn't like the legislation that was proposed for constitutional reasons. Fine. How about just at least sense of Congress that he shouldn't fire Sessions, Rosenstein, or Mueller? If you do think that uh, the DACA recipient should be uh, just given citizenship and given a path to citizenship, and we should get that, you know, sort of it's the right thing to do. It also removes a contentious political issue that's, you know, being demagogued on, on both sides now with immigration, you could say. Uh, that's There's legislation to do that. There's legislation to secure our elections that uh, Senator Langford has introduced. So there are things you could do more. I think someone like SAS could 
spend more time pushing for certain pieces of legislation that are in accord with the actual criticisms he's made of the Trump administration. And they're pretty fundamental criticisms. But I agree that, that somehow voting against Brett Kavanaugh does not make sense. I want to talk to you about uh, the McCain ceremonies over the weekend, and you were there at the National Cathedral, and it was really a remarkable event, and I really wanted to get your take uh, right after this. Uh, The Daily Standard podcast today is brought to you by Quip. The truth is that most of us are brushing our teeth wrong and not for long enough. We forget to change our brush on time. That's because most brands focus on selling flashy gimmicks rather than better brushing, but not Quip. So what makes Quip so different? Well, for starters, Quip's an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. Quip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. Plus, you know, Quip's subscription plans are for your health, not not just convenient, although they're quite convenient. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist recommended schedule every three months for just five bucks, including free shipping worldwide. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash standard right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash standard spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash standard. Okay, so Bill, you and I were talking about uh, the McCain ceremony which uh, now, now seems so long ago. Um, and I was telling you that uh, I was watching it on television, and I cannot remember the last time, if ever, that I've ever watched a televised funeral straight through and uh, really struck by what an extraordinary moment it was for the country. But uh, while I was watching it on television, you were there in the National Cathedral. So I'd be really interested to know what it was like to be there on Saturday morning. No, I had the same impression as you. I mean, Susan and I were there. We've been, you know, had the honor of having lived in Washington for 30 years, worked in the White House, but being at some events like that, I mean, President Reagan's funeral, for example, since I worked in the Reagan administration, uh, other, you know, state events of one kind or another. I've got a, Susan said, turned to me, uh, and said to me after the, as we were walking out, this was really the most remarkable single event that we've been to in Washington, wasn't it? And I, I said, yeah, I think so. I mean, just the combination of, uh, the moment. I mean, also for me personally, you know, knowing John, having known Senator McCain pretty well, and worked pretty closely mm-hmm. with him. A little different from someone like President Reagan, who I mm-hmm. looked up to and I met a few times, but it was kind of yeah, much more. This is much, you know, much closer mm-hmm. relationship. Um, and some of the people who spoke, I know well, Joe Lieberman and others. At least I know somewhat. So again, just personally, I felt you know a little closer maybe to the event. But but the combination of the pageantry, the stuff the National Cathedral does so well. The military side of it with the Marine Band and the Naval Academy Choir, uh, the patriotic hymns. I mean, we sang the Battle Hymn of the Republic, uh, uh, My Country Tis of Thee, and God Bless, uh, and I guess in America, the Beautiful. I think those are the three we sang. Right? Uh, I mean, they were sung by the choirs, and then, you know, the, the, the we were invited to join for the last stanza and stuff. I mean, it really was that patriotic side of it was moving. Uh, the religious side uh, was 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 moving. Uh, so it was uh, Danny Boy sung by Renee Fleming, oh, it was, that, that which was, was a favorite of yeah. McCain's. I gather yeah. he had seen it at another funeral. Uh, I was at, Mark Salter was talking told me afterwards about 15 years ago, and it said, "Gee, I'd like that sung at my funeral." And then they were able to get <laughs> Renee Fleming. That was really a remarkable moment. So the whole thing, I mean, partly it was about McCain personally and what he symbolized and exemplified, and how much we miss that today. 
And it was somehow about that this country can pull this together in an impressive way. And you got the sense this is a great country. I mean, it really, you know, it's this impressive thing that we did for one of our leading political figures. Uh, and it reminds us of, of our ideals and of a kind of unity and a kind of patriotism and a kind of faith um, that, you know, one forgets about when one gets, uh, you know, in the day-to-day politics of this era and maybe, to be fair, of, of other eras as well. So it really was uh, an un- it was a long service, almost three hours, but you didn't feel at any point that, gee, I wish this thing were kind of, you know, getting over or something like that. It was really uh, a privilege to have been there. It, it it also obviously was the, the, the contrast with the era that we're living through. And, uh, you know, I read, you know, one commentator said it was a called arms. Um, others, and I guess this would be my reaction, was it, it, it had the feeling of, of kind of a, of a lament. Uh, the, the part of the poignancy was what we've lost, the, the kinds of values. And it was very striking to me, you know, how many, uh, you know, folks – thought that just descriptions of fundamental American values and things like uh, of character, including, you know, uh, you know, strength and integrity were were interpreted as critiques of the current occupant of the Oval Office. What was your reaction to Meghan McCain's comment and that really rather striking and uh, unusual moment where um, the crowd actually applauded a line that was clearly a, a pointed barb at Trump? Yeah, I was surprised by the applause. Obviously, at a funeral service, like memorial was. service, but I can't say that. On the other hand, it 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 wasn't inappropriate for the moment. I mean, look, she she said what she wanted to say, and I think she's her father's daughter, and I think he would have enjoyed her being a little more combative than maybe is usually the case at a funeral. But God knows she's entitled to it, and and people who are whining and complaining about it are being a little ridiculous. Um, and I, uh, and look, I sort of substantively agree with pretty much what she said, uh, pretty much everything she said, really. Um, no, I think, I think it, it felt a little elegiac, a little bit of a lament, but of course that also can be the prelude to, to action. I guess I wouldn't think of it as a call to action so much as a reminder of what could be. And if you think hard about what was, but also what could be, um, you know, then you do get motivated hopefully, to, to act in accord with what could be. So it's sort of like people criticizing Ben Sass, right? He's not doing enough. Well, maybe that's the case. That's always a kind of a judgment call, and each individual has to make a you know, decision about what he can most usefully do at what time. And But but even calling attention to things is a real service. I, don't, I think that's underestimated. I mean, yeah. just just that is, is – this is democracy. It's going to take a while to work things out. People, you know, tens of millions of people have to think about these things and come to judgments. But, but, but that's why it's just the calling – the calling attention to the 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 highlighting the reminding is itself a service. And I also thought that it would be a good thing if everybody, every elected official in in that cathedral was thinking, well, how will I be remembered? What right. will my legacy be? This is this is a a would be a good thing. And you you we do hope that you know, the Ben Sasses of of the world, other members of the Senate, you know, incoming Senator Mitt Romney is looking at that and going, okay. Um, I do care, uh, you know, the legacy that I have. What will they say about me, you know, at an event like this? And to that extent, it could have an effect. Well, because um, it, uh, because we we have to. <laughs> it's it seems like every every what every quarter or so we get another blockbuster book. This one does feel a little bit different. Um, Bob Woodward's coming out with his new book uh, next week, a 448 page book. I have not read it, but I've read the excerpts as you have, I'm sure. Uh, Fear. Apparently drawn from hundreds of interviews, um, many of them taped, uh, describes uh, a nervous breakdown of the Trump presidency, um, just packed with 
rather graphic uh, anecdotes. Uh, Gary Cohn stealing documents from Trump's desk so he was unable to see them. The defense secretary um, allegedly saying that Trump acted that had the understanding of a fifth or sixth grader. Um, apparently, uh, uh, well, allegedly uh, Trump told Mattis that he wanted to assassinate uh, President Assad following in the Syrian government's chemical attacks. Let's, you know, effing kill him. Let's go and let's kill the effing lot of them. And Mattis told the president he'd get right on it. But when he hung up the phone said, yeah, we're not doing that. Um, really extraordinary quote from John Kelly. Uh, he's an idiot. Um, he's going off the rails. We're in crazy town. I don't know why any of us are here. This is the worst I've ever had. Reince Priebus um, quoted as uh, calling those early morning tweet storms the witching hour, uh, the bedroom where he watches TV, the devil's workshop. And Trump reciprocates the uh, the esteem by calling him a little rat. And then, of course, there are the comments about uh, Jeff Sessions, who he called uh, mentally retarded, a dumb Southern who couldn't even be a one-person country lawyer down in Alabama. So, Bill Crystal, you know, part of the, the question is, and there's two, two big questions I want to ask you here, including the responsibility of the staffers. But um, this does seem to reinforce pictures from other accounts, the reporting from uh, you know, people like Maggie Haberman, even things from that very unfortunate book by Michael Wolf. But coming from Bob Woodward, it's going to have more credibility. So what 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 was your takeaway from reading these? You know, stories? A, it's consistent with generally what we've heard, what I've heard personally about the Trump White House and the Trump administration from people who've been in it or people who are close to people who've been in it. So I can't say it, it, it rang true. That doesn't mean that any particular snatch of dialogue is exactly reproduced correctly. Obviously, Woodward's depending on the memory of various people who talk to him, some of whom would be the people in the dialogue with Trump, some of whom would be people to whom it was reported by people in the dialogue. You know, So I, I think it's going to be a little bit of, of – uh, it could be – you know, I wouldn't swear to every sentence in the book, but I, I – my general experience with Woodward, whom I've known for years, and who I, he, I was, you know, I was in the first Bush White House, and so Woodward wrote two books about that, I believe, including one he co-authored about Dan Quayle, is that, you know, he'll 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 set things up dramatically to make the book flow better. So there's a sense in which things maybe are a little deeper than they sometimes are in real life, uh, and he does reproduce this dialogue as if it's he's getting it perfectly correct. Where obviously he's depending on people's memories, um, but having said that, I, I've never found him in my personal experience with them to be basically wrong. You know, mm -hmm. he, he could be slightly more colorful a scene he'll set, and you'll remember it and think it didn't quite go that way. He's got the you know the the order slightly off, or maybe there's someone in the room who wasn't in the room, but you know basically correct. And so I, I would say my judgment is that that's probably the case with this with this book as well. Yeah, the uh, I, I was trying to figure out what what is new and what is not new here. Uh, some of the stuff about the the the, the attorney Dowd, John Dowd, um, uh, is rather extraordinary. Um, the you know the you know don't testify either that or an orange jumpsuit, um, and uh, when the president wouldn't listen to him, he he resigned. And uh, the the last paragraph of the book basically has Dowd. Saying that you're you're a bleeping liar or some or something like that. I mean, look, the facts are, you know, if this came out about a White House in which there hadn't been extraordinary right. turnover, in which people hadn't been fired and resigned, in which there hadn't been other stories like this, uh, as you say, reported either in the Daily Press or by previous authors, 
including some who worked there. I mean, like Omarosa, whatever you think of her. I mean, she was there, right? Uh, hired by Trump. Um, you know, then you'd say, well, this seems a little wacky. I mean, this, this doesn't correspond with what others are saying. But it does correspond with what others are saying and what others have said privately and semi-publicly and publicly. So I think that's the key point. It's not as if he's, you know, claiming, you know, Dow did resign. Why did that happen? You know, it seems perfectly plausible uh, that some version of what Woodward recounts is in fact what happened. Now, this, of course, raises the question again, what are the responsibilities of the staffers? Uh, I think it was Britt Hume who said, you know, th- thank, thank goodness that people have ignored uh, the never Trumpers and have gone to work for the president, because if it wasn't for the grownups around the president, uh, things might have been a lot worse. So I guess that is the question. Um, what are the responsibilities of the men and women around the president? You do have people who are removing documents from the president's desk, hanging up the phone and basically saying we're going to ignore him. But then, of course, rather than resigning or saying anything public, they simply leak it to um, Bob Woodward or someone close to them leaks it to to Bob Woodward. So so again, what 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 is the the culpability? What is the responsibility of the people who have gone to work for this administration? And on one hand, you could say they've enabled him. They were complicit. On the other hand, you know, we're certainly glad that some of them are there. Yeah, and it's a complicated question. It's one that I've actually addressed in the Weekly Standard, and Steve Hayes has, and I think you have, and others. I mean, generally speaking, I've had the view, contrary to some of my friends who are more extreme on this, that good people should go to work if they can do good for the country. I mean, that, that and should stay in their jobs if they feel in good conscience they can, in the sense of they're not carrying out policies they just feel are terrible, and if they think they're doing some good. So especially in the national security area, and this isn't just theoretical. I have many, know many young people in Washington who've you know, asked me, well, should I do this, should I do that? And generally in the national security area, I've recommended to people to go into the jobs they've been offered uh, if they can, as I say, carry them out in good conscience. If they as a policy they just fundamentally disagree with, that's, that's another story. I wouldn't go to work in the, in the communication shop in the White House or in some kind of personal capacity working for Trump because that's sort of a different story than you're sort of selling, uh, you know, you're lying on behalf of Trump instead of helping the country. Now, is that a clear, bright line, uh, black and white thing? No, obviously not. Should people quit when they feel they have to? Absolutely. And no one's obliged to stay there exactly. So these are murkier situations. I think Britt Hume is, you know, fine. He can take his, he's criticizing, I think, really just a few never-Trumpers like Elliot Cohen, who's made, though, an eloquent argument and has to be taken seriously that really no one should should go to work in that administration. I don't agree with that. And I wouldn't say, incidentally, that's been the position of most never-Trumpers. So, uh, and indeed, I'm now amused that Britt Hume, who's been sort of has spent most of his time reassuring us that everything's fine with Trump, is now, in effect, saying, well, thank God, people who don't actually didn't vote for Trump, frankly, and probably don't think very highly of him, like a Jim Mattis or a Gary Cohn or others, uh, are there to sort of stop him from doing certain things. And um, so fine, if that's now the defense the, uh, that the pro-Trump people want to make, uh, that's fine with me. But it's still a hell of a way to run a White House and an administration, as Mattis and Kelly and Cohn and all these people would be the first to say privately. And in fact, now, well, they wouldn't be the first to say because they're discreet, but they would say if put under truth serum privately. And some of them seem to have said it, or their friends have said it to Woodward publicly. So, you know, this is not optimal, but it is important that the country not fall off a cliff. And I have the highest regard for people like H.R. McMaster, uh, 
and a high regard for Jim Mattis and, and regard for others, too, who've tried to do their jobs, including many people we don't even know about down in the trenches. I just came from a conference this morning here in Washington, a very Washington thing, uh, sponsored by the Institute for the Study of War, and it was a bunch of panels on defense and foreign policy, mostly featuring people in the military and in the civilian side of the Defense Department and State Department. Uh, and, and uh, you know, a lot of they're mixing and mingling with people like me who've been very critical of Trump, and we had no... I had, I have total respect for those people, and they're doing important jobs, strengthening our cybersecurity or carrying out our policies towards Asia and so forth. And so I think it's a bit of a straw man there that Brit Hume has has, uh, created. And in fact, I think I really hope people will come to grip. People who have defended Trump so far, they can defend him all they want. They can say he's better than Hillary. They can praise the appointment of Kavanaugh. I mean, what they need to confront beginning on November 7th, two months from now, after Election Day, is are they fine with just another four years for Trump? Because that's been their line. Their line hasn't just been, well, don't be so critical of Trump. Their line has been, he's doing fine. You know, he's it's his party. Of course, the idea of a primary challenge, ridiculous. Who would do that? He's got all the support from the base, and that's that's just both inevitable and good, really, has been their line. Are they willing to look, read this book and say they're fine with not just the two years we've had so far, but two more and then another four for Donald Trump? I, I think the, the burden is on them to make that case. You know, you've also been involved with, uh, is the organization called the Republicans for uh, the Rule of Law? Right, that's, yes. I, I, I want to hear, um, you know, one of the problems of the Trump era is, is that we do get numb to all of this. And right. I hate to keep using the term normalized because that's now become normalized. But I, I keep coming back to the tweet over the weekend where uh, – the, the president uh, attacked Jeff Sessions for the Department of Justice's indictment of two um, apparently corrupt Republican congressmen. I had the I have the sense that you know as bad as these tweets have been in the past that this may have marked this may have been the worst one in terms of of, of an overt attack on the rule of law. Here you have a president who has openly encourages Department of Justice to prosecute his political enemies, and then to suggest that the Department of Justice should have uh, not uh, prosecuted his political allies. This is the kind of stuff that if you found out he was saying it in private, you would regard it as a massive scandal, perhaps impeachable. But the president is saying it in his out loud voice. And as a result, perhaps the reaction isn't what it ought to be. But my sense was that was really a new low. Very bad for the country. And as you say, he sits upon this kind of gimmick if he says it out loud and he doesn't do anything about it. So he avoids it looking as if it's some kind of conspiracy that we've unearthed. So he, in a certain way, he thinks or people think, well, it's not so terrible. He's not hiding anything. And that he doesn't really do anything exactly to follow up on it. So people say, well, and it's just talk. But the, nonetheless, it's talk that lays the predicate for doing things. And it's talk that delegitimizes certain things and encourages other to do, others to do things. And as you say, it's not, it's not as if publicly proclaiming authoritarian views is that much healthier than privately pursuing authoritarian views and policies. So, yeah, I hope it's a wake-up call to everyone. And I did notice on this tweet over the weekend, people who had been Trump defenders even had to say, oof, boy, Mr. President, I'm, don't you understand? I think it was saying that Brit Hume was sort of was like, mm-hmm. if only this president could learn that, you know, as if, as if it's a matter of learning. The president doesn't believe in the rule of law in the way that most of us do. That's the problem, and he's not changed his mind about that. He's he's frustrated that he can't quite pursue his uh, authoritarianism, his banana republic-type views as much as effectively as he had hoped. But again, it does get to sort of what happens uh, the day after Election Day when some of these constraints might be lifted a little bit. 
this year and it get, gets to how much you trust him to stay within some of these constraints uh, over the next two, four, six years in terms of re-election. So I think going forward, the, the, this last week has heightened, I think, people's sense about, gee, do we want a Republican Congress that's going to be complacent with Trump? Mm-hmm. And then do we want Trump again for another four years? Bill Crystal, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.